We are super excited to announce that you'll be joined on this episode by our first sponsor, Recess, the furniture startup. So Recess sells everything you need for your home and office. And they've sent us one of their products, which is their office chair. And oh my God, it is the most comfortable thing I've ever sat in. I'm actually really jealous of Sachin because I had a feel in it and it is incredibly comfortable. It makes you more productive. And I'm stuck on this chair, which is about to break at any minute. Recess has helped thousands of Aussie startups, including the likes of Eucalyptus, Afterwork, and Leica. They also have enterprise customers such as Mervac. How you feel when you're working really matters for your productivity and just for your health as well. So if you want to get fitted out with some furniture, whether it's an ergonomic chair or a soundproof box, let us know. We've got discounts for B2C customers for 20%. And if you're a B2B customer, let us know and we'll sort you out. And we didn't want to tell you this because it's not peer-reviewed yet. But ever since I've sat in this chair, it's increased my productivity by 300%. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the Sachin Adam Show. So today we have a very special guest joining us all the way from Singapore. We have the Managing Director of um, Peak 15 and the formerly called Sequoia Asia, Apeak Anand. Yeah, Abhik, very, very excited to have you on today. So for our guests, we love interviewing investors, founders, um, and everyone else in the world of business. And in terms of who is in the top leagues of the investing world, if you think of one name and one firm, it's really sort of Sequoia that stands out as being generationally the VC fund that has lasted for so long, so many incredible investors, so many big names in the world of investing. And we're very, very privileged to have on Abhik, who was previously a manager at Sequoia Capital in Southeast Asia. But as Sachin said, it's been a recent name change in um, calling it Peak 15 now. But previously in another life, Peak was a co-founder at a company called Tactile, worked at Facebook as a product developer, as a product manager, and was also a software developer. So thanks very much co- to coming on today, Peak. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm excited. As part of preparing for these episodes, we do a lot of research and we try and start somewhere kind of a little bit counterintuitive. So we, we saw on the Sequoia website, you have kind of your interests and one of them is diving. What's been your favorite place in the world to go diving? Guys, I got to say, like, this is one of my favorite first questions ever. So <laughs> thank you for starting from a place that is, you know, very, very close to my heart. Uh, my favorite place to dive, I, I guess the, my, the the best place I've been to recently has been uh, uh, a place in the eastern part of Indonesia called Raja Ampat. It's, yeah. it's very famous. It's actually very close to Australia. Um, it is absolutely fantastic. And the reason I love it is, you know, you kind of go there and it feels like you're in... Uh, a part of the world that looks the same for the last hundred years, like nothing's changed while the rest of the world has moved on. It's like this little, um, this little sort of, uh, you know, paradise that just seems somewhat untouched. It's fantastic. Uh, please get it. If you get a chance to go there, I highly recommend it. Is is a reason you like diving because no one can ping you while you're underwater? It's super meditative. <laughs> it is. It really is. You yeah. know, the, one of the first times I dived, I was amazed at how easily time time goes by. And, you know, as an investor, one of the things that, you know, tends to tends to happen a lot as we just our minds are flipping from one thing to the other constantly. There's portfolio work, there's new companies, there's talking to folks like yourselves, just thinking about life. And it's very hard to get sort of the the mind space to just to just think. Uh I, I love that about diving. Yeah, I think um sort of cold ocean swimming has been a big theme of guests in our <laughs> podcast because everyone in this industry, like you said, we're sort of wrestling with this idea of like how do we take ourselves outside of work or even take ourselves outside of our brains for a second because it's such an analytical and stimulating job. So it's it's one of the best methods. And in sort of researching your background, I found it really fascinating because you've done a lot of things in terms of you studied computer science, you've got an MBA, you're working technical, product manager as a VC, as a founder. I'm really interested in like, 
throughout all these different experiences, what's the thing that's really been driving you at your core? Yeah, no, I think I, I'd say the common thread for me has always been um, trying to understand how things work and um, trying to take complex problems and breaking it down. Honestly, that's what, you know, uh, I, I I did like a, a my college degree and a, a master's in, in computer science. And computer science is all about trying to take very complex problems and breaking them down into very simple composable things that you can add together and you know that ends up becoming a a way to solve a complex problem um i find that you know uh the things that i i enjoy the most always sort of it really comes down to that that type of problem solving and i guess investing is a different kind of problem solving where in some ways you're trying to look around the corner and and try to have a point of view on how the future will pan out and um you know i i when i used to sort of before i before i joined sequoia now peak 15 i always thought investing was was much more of an art than a science, but I really found that it's a it's a blend of both, right? It's an art in the sense that you need to really have a a lot of creativity and imagination, but it needs to be grounded in reality and truth. And so this combination of, um, you know, being a, being analytical but being creative um, is something that I find fascinating. And you know, I think the best founders are like that as well. They're they're able to be very creative and um, they have this sort of pretty insatiable curiosity and getting a chance to work with with folks like that is is frankly like an incredible privilege yeah i think adam and i had this discussion over a few beers one night that leonardo da vinci might have been a venture capitalist in this day and age because of the right brain left brain thinking right and i think that's what fascinates a lot of people that maybe have that analytical tendency but also that desire to create challenge the status quo mm. and it's that marriage of those two worlds um but a big it seems like you've had this kind of deep curiosity from a young age is there anything in your childhood that points to you kind of having this inclination to take things apart, to really kind of try and understand how things work? I, you know, I, so I grew up in India and I, I grew up at a time when India was, I mean, India is still a relatively poor country. Back then it was definitely very poor. I remember, you know, my family did not have any money growing up. We were just literally, you know, living in a very, very tiny apartment. Um, and um, really the only way to, to have any kind of sort of, um, you know, chances that social mobility was through education. And um, I find that that's been culturally the case across many different societies where, um, you know, tough times bring about sort of creativity and this urge to, to sort of live a better life. And so for me and for everybody that I knew growing up, education was, was sort of that one important way to kind of break out of where we were when we got started. And, you know, if you don't go, if you didn't go down that path, you were basically stuck in, you know, a life that was, was, you know, probably not that exciting to be honest. And, um, you know, at that time I didn't fully appreciate what a gift that was. Um, you know, this, this idea of resource constraints, this idea of, of, uh, of not having a whole lot. Um, and, um, you know, I found that, um, that was what really drove me to say, you know, I need to, to sort of figure out what my strengths are, play to my strengths. And for me, like it was always about problem solving. And I, I and I, you know, many, many years later, I was, I remember when I first, I, I used to live in San Francisco before I moved back to Asia and moving to San Francisco, like one of the first things I realized that was, was pretty much all the, the, well, maybe not all, but many of the successful founders were, were immigrants. And there was this sort of, this this narrative that you almost needed to be an immigrant to be successful as a founder. Now, obviously, that's not true. You don't have to be an immigrant. But what immigrants do bring to the table is this 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 sense of not have 
having come from a whole lot and looking to live a better life and that kind of drive is really you know quite critical across many many different people and so you know i found that you know as a child it's hard to appreciate not growing up with much but as an adult you can look back and say wow that was actually the biggest gift that i could have gotten from my parents is is this sort of drive to try to do something with my life and speaking of the immigrant mentality a lot of the really successful indians that we see here in australia and the us they go to the mythical place of iit it's become such a significant trend lately that just fascinating and incredible people are from there and a lot of the world don't really know about this place like we know about the harvards and the stanfords of the world but can you explain a little bit about iit and why there's so many brilliant people coming out of it and sort of what makes it special Yeah, so IIT is a set of colleges that um that are in India. There's there's quite a few of them now. It started off with four or five. Uh, they've the Indian government's really doubled down on it, and there's many, many more now. I'd say it's basically the best um or one of the best um you know engineering programs in India. And I think the reason that it's interesting is, you know, I I do I do think like you know the the quality of education is fantastic, but I I think what it does really well is in a world in a country where you know there are a billion four people there is a the the iits do a really good job of bringing um, meritocracy to the selection process and so there is a a and you know and it cuts both ways it's 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 a pro and a con but but we have this like you know really massive uh exam that everybody has to give and based on how well you do in that exam you get a chance to participate in one of these programs and nothing else matters and so it's very cut and dry it's it's got it's sides but the big upside is that it really does a great job in the selection process and then you know candidly what happens after that is really the same thing that we see happening in many societies all over where you know in in if you're a part of a community where you have a bunch of role models you start to aspire to be like them and and that sort of virtuous cycle has really kicked off in 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 these programs where you know if you look at you know a bunch of you know the leading tech ceos in the us they all went to the iits and uh, when you start to think of them as role models you can't help but think hey i must do something uh, meaningful with my life and i think that that virtuous cycle really kicks in very nicely so i i found that to be um, an incredible community to be a part of um, and uh, it's definitely helped jump start a lot of you know my own personal career trajectory can i ask you a question that you maybe may not have been asked before Um the IITs are very intense and to study you know to get into them it, it's studying like 16 hours a day a lot of the time and that kind of intensity continues throughout your life. Of course that's been really good for your career but do you think that intensity has impacted your family or personal life in any way? Dude I love your questions man. I I I love how you guys are 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 looking at the other side of things. Actually let me let me preface that that answer by saying I was not the kid who was studying 16 hours a day. Okay. I was just naturally smart. Uh no I I was skipping classes I you know I did very well in the pro, in the classes that I liked and the ones that I did not like I did extremely poorly at and uh you know I to me like the thing that actually really was was the most defining moment of my time at IIT was I ended up becoming it it sounds a little nerdy but like I was I was the I I ended up becoming the the person who was managing all of the computer networks in the school mm-hmm. and so that to me was like incredible because like suddenly I was learning things outside of the classroom that I found fascinating so it was really this sort of hacker mindset of being in the weed of things and and learning outside of the classroom my grades were terrible um and you know and it you know I mean I had a lot of fun but mm-hmm. 
uh, my grades were terrible. I would say, again, this is probably sheer dumb luck, but the reason my grades were terrible was because I ended up not spending a lot of time in my class, but then it did mean that I ended up doing a lot of things outside of the classroom. And I thought that was sort of an, you know, just a stroke of luck uh, because I suddenly had a much more round, well-rounded education than I would have hoped for otherwise. And, you know, candidly, like, you know, when you go to college, you, the things that you think matter to success in life end up not mattering as much uh, over time. And the things that you don't think matter could sometimes be the most important things. And so for, for me, like this breadth and of, of, of learning sort of integrative thinking was actually like super valuable in my career. Uh, I'm not an engineer. I'm not writing software. I'm not writing code anymore. So if I was, I might be saying this differently. But in my personal career, that 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 choice of being lazy worked out really well. Mm. And Abhik, you there you sort of mentioned the idea of luck a few times. And luck is something that me and Sachin find very fascinating because we we find that the most successful people, they manage to create a lot of luck in their life and they have a big sort of surface area where luck strikes them. Sachin actually did a TED talk on this very idea just a few weeks ago. And one of the quotes on the Sequoia website is that whoever said I'd rather be lucky than smart didn't realize that the smartest people have an uncanny ability to manufacture luck. So I was wondering, in the perspective of your life, how have you been able to manufacture luck yourself? Yeah, and you know, guys, I, I was listening to one of your earlier episodes on, I think it was with Paul, uh, and Square and, and from Squarepeg, and he mentioned the same thing. I remember this topic coming up, and this idea of manufacturing luck. I mean, I just kind of wrote it down in my bio I, as as sort of something that I personally believe in, and I think, you know, as as people sort of reflect, I, I think there's a difference between. Um, thinking forward and planning your career and reflecting back and thinking about what what worked. And this is much more of a, a retrospective thing than 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 perspective uh, in the sense that when I look back at the most important decisions that I've made in my professional career, many of them seem to be, you know, at a very high level, a lot of luck involved, you know, right place, right time, being in front of the right people. But then that was the lazy answer to saying, oh, wow, you just, you know, just got to be lucky. But but the real but but luck is not something that traditionally one thinks of as you know things that you can create. I I have a personal philosophy where I disagree with that because luck can be manufactured by by being in the in places of a lot of activity. It's a little bit of it's a little bit like saying you know you think back if you think about for example you know evolution right if you're if you're surrounded by the right set of inputs more interesting things could happen. One could say like. You know, I find evolution fascinating. You know, just again, personal curiosity. I find you know Darwin's like a personal hero of mine. If you think about the way evolution happens, like it feels like it's all just sheer dumb luck. But what it really is is you know a lot of different things happening, and the people who are there at the right place at the right time start to get the benefit of that. So, for example, for me, a very big thing that I did right again, not having planned it as such, but in retrospect, turned out to be one of the smartest things I did was being surrounded by. A group of really smart people at the epicenter of 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 the startup world, which is San Francisco, and just being surrounded by people like that meant that you know side conversations would result in interesting ideas. You end up meeting interesting people. Um, I met my co-founder, um, you know, through a common friend, uh, and he was you know one of the smartest people that I'd ever known. And if I hadn't been living in San Francisco, there's no way I would have met him. Um, and so I do think you know being in the in the flow of information, surrounding yourselves with really smart people, being around people that are motivated, being in being in environments where you feel comfortable taking risk, 
um, I do think is absolutely critical to success because, you know, I believe in the long-term power of compounding, but compounding becomes much more interesting if you start to take the risk in the early days to change the, the slope of your trajectory. And so if you start with steady, you know, it's a little bit like saying, again, using sort of financial terms, if you, if you compound at like, you know, uh, some, you know, let's say an investment at 6% versus 10%, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but, you know, you compound that over 10 or 15 years, it is a massive difference. And so I think just being surrounded by interesting people and ideas and being in the flow of information is like, is, is, is really critical to manufacturing luck. Yeah, mm, that's that just a, really jade me up that whole talk. Adam's gonna book his flights to San Francisco now and move, and move there. Um, I think I think we'll get on to tag tile in a second and your time in the Bay Area. Um, but before we get there, I was going to ask you, how would your best friend describe you and your personality? I mean, I I have a person in mind when I think of my best friend, and I think he would say like I'm very curious and uh, always uh, interested in in new things. Yeah. Um, and I think like. I found that, you know, the people that I admire the most have an insane amount of curiosity. Um, you know, somebody once asked me this question about what it takes to be a successful investor. And, you know, not that I would, not that I'm an expert at this, but I have known a lot of incredible investors. And if I had to draw a common thread between all of them that I, I could personally be inspired by, I feel like that's this sense of insatiable curiosity. Yeah. You know, I've, you know, again, without naming names, you know, one of my former partners is this incredible investor who's been investing for decades and, you know, has backed all the, you know, uh, a bunch of companies that all of us know incredibly well. If you sit down and have a conversation with him, you know, it's fascinating because you'll find that he's the one asking you questions instead of the other way around. And I'm like, well, hang on, I'm this young kid, you know, this who's just trying to learn from you. Why are you the one asking me questions? Yeah. And that's because he has this insatiable curiosity. And so I find that curiosity is a is an incredible uh, input into you know having impact being successful and i that's something that i strive to do as well personally does his name start with r by any chance i'm gonna i'm gonna say m (laughs) 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 sort of starting to veer a bit into your career and your sort of narrative obviously you go from india to san francisco in the bay area and one of the early things you do is uh you did an mba at stanford and you sort of mentioned before that you got the immigrant mentality from india i'm sure you've picked up a bunch of lessons from being surrounded by singapore um founders and investors how did the sort of bay area mindset um change you when you went over there yeah you know i'd say the Look, I think I have a lot of, um, you know, respect and admiration for the Bay Area as an incredible place where where founders have come together to build, you know, very large institutions. It is no longer the only place where that happens, but it's definitely the place where a lot of these very interesting things started. And I'd say a lot of it really boils down to a this culture of creativity. And it's not Actually, this culture of 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 creating things, I think creativity is slightly different, but it's, it's this, this hacker mindset, this builder mindset. And um, I think that's the thing that I've always appreciated about engineers and 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 product people. And uh, a lot of my role models are are people who who create things because you know there is this sense of um, given the right toolkit, you can really create anything you want. And so really you're only limited by your own creativity and, and ambition and i find that san francisco is a was an incredible place for that you know everybody had you know very very interesting ideas that they were working on there were lots of people now of course there's a lot of noise in the system but when you dis- when you sort of you know go a little bit under the surface there are tons of people who are working on changing the world in very meaningful ways and they have the ability to do it and i find that 
being surrounded by by such people is just incredibly inspirational. I think Stanford was like that, where you know if you didn't start a company after graduating, you'd basically let your own class, your cohort down. You know, and so everybody decided that oh, entrepreneurship is the way to have you know a an outsized impact in your career. And so I, I do think that culture is is incredibly important. Unfortunately, you know, in many places where you have the other raw ingredients, you know, the talent, the the capital, the opportunity set, sometimes that culture doesn't exist. It doesn't result in the same level of output. And so I think you know, at least I've always strived to be in a place where that culture of creativity, that culture of of um, of the underdog coming in to change change the world exists. And and you know, San Francisco was definitely the epicenter of that at that time. Yeah, and post MBA, you started um, a company that was obviously acquired by Facebook. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how you came came up with the idea? Yeah, look, I think um, again, you know, I I always felt that you know, I, I always personally identified as a founder, even though I hadn't started anything. And the reason was, you know, I well, I I grew up with a healthy disrespect for authority, uh, so. You know, over time, I managed to turn that into a positive. In the beginning, maybe it was a little bit of a negative. But you know, I think there was this idea that, like, you know, um, I wanted to be in control of my own destiny, and like, I think finding my co-founder, um, and and working with him on a bunch of ideas in San Francisco, um, was probably the most gratifying way in which I could do it. Now, I honestly, like, I think the thing that was was in, was very interesting for me was again, it it's it was a place of coming from, you know, you know, moving to the U.S. You know, not really having too much money at all, um, to building a little bit of a career over there, and then sort of giving it all up to start something new, uh, which sounded completely crazy. But to me, like it was absolutely essential that I go down that path. And so we ran this business for a few years. Eventually, ended up selling that to Facebook. For me, the biggest learning over there was this sense of, you know, one of my professors at Stanford would always say, um, the biggest risk of entrepreneurship is it makes you constitutionally unemployable. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's absolutely true. Like, you know, that's why you have repeat founders. You know. Once you become a founder, it's very hard to go back. For me, like my big learning was, I I really enjoy this this sort of entrepreneurial journey, and and you know while as an investor you're on the other side of the table, in many ways you're sort of participating in that journey. And so uh, to me, like it was a, a fantastic way to sort of get that experience, um, to go through that journey. And I you know I find that that experience is very very helpful working with founders. It gives you a certain level of connect with founders that is otherwise hard to get uh, outside in. Mm. And then once your startup got acquired, how would you sort of characterize that period of working at Facebook? Because I know in that period of around 2012 and uh, before that, there were a lot of brilliant people working at Facebook and they they coined terms like data science and there were people like Shamath working there. And we had um, Jonathan Chu uh, last week from Tried Capital. He was working at Facebook at, I think, around that time or earlier. They were just brilliant minds. And how did that influence you as well? You know, I think the... That was my first time working in a large organization that was super functional. And, you know, it was a very mission-driven organization. Uh, obviously, tons of smart people. Uh, and I think, you know, actually, I found that especially in places like the Bay Area, it's not that hard to find smart people. It's very hard to find smart people who are also all fully aligned behind the mission of the company. You know, for me, when I when we moved to Facebook, that was before the company went public. It went public shortly thereafter. And um, my biggest takeaway working at Facebook was that, you know, you really need to play the long game. Uh, I was working on, on advertising products and, you know, I would have thought, you know, if as a newly minted public company, revenue is, is all that matters. But the company was incredibly focused on product and realized that, you know, the 
it's you, you can't have the tail wag the dog it has to be the other way around product comes comes first and so i found that to be a very interesting learning experience at the same time it was also very clear to me very early on that like i wasn't cut out for big company life and uh so it was a it was a good sort of break i spent a little over a year there but uh it was very clear that i i i sort of really found a lot more joy working in smaller teams and smaller organizations yeah and and it seemed like kind of when you're in the process of joining sequoia you kind of thought you wanted to be a founder again and there's a quote you said you always thought that you wanted to be a founder again and being an investor was never really on the cards but you felt there was something a little bit different about sequoia what, what what do you think that was and how did you actually come into that position in the first place now for a quick break from the podcast and satch we've been wanting to hire someone for a while haven't we yeah i can see the bags under your eyes from all the editing you've been doing yeah, it's getting pretty tedious to edit these podcasts week after week, but I don't really know where to start when hiring someone. Yeah, I've got a friend in the Philippines, actually, that I think would make a brilliant hire for the show, but I don't know the first thing about getting them onboarded. Yeah, see, that just like makes me nervous. It's like payroll, <laughs> insurance, all these forms that you've got to think of. Look, we're probably going to break a law if we try <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Luckily, our friends at Employment Hero have a great solution for this. They've got a new product called Global Teams, which helps you set up new employees from around the world even when your business isn't operating in their region. Yeah, this is awesome. And you also get um, access to global talent teams, which is really cool when you're trying to hire from all around the world. And it's actually um, one of our friends, Ben Thompson, who runs Employment Hero, who's been on the podcast before. So we were really stoked to partner with this such a great organization. Ben is an absolute legend. We're very keen to have a beer with him soon. But if you're having troubles hiring people around the world, I highly recommend you check out Employment Hero. Uh, dude, you know, it, is, it really surprised me. Um, I did not expect to really, you know, like investing and 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 the firm as much as I did. And I think the reason for that really, again, boils down to culture. You know, I, I think, Adam, you said that at the start of this conversation about how you said something about Sequoia as a, a firm that, you know, has existed for a long time and been successful. But to me, like the most interesting part about that is the fact that we've been in business for a long time. And this idea of enduring um, is fascinating to me because, you know, if you believe that the real way to drive outsized impact is through compounding uh, effort over time. Really, all that matters is setting your organization up for, for sort of delivering performance over the long run. And I found that the culture at Sequoia and now at Peak 15 is, is exactly aligned to that, which is, hey, play the long game. Don't make decisions based on short-term optimization. Much easier said than done. Um, really sort of keep the long-term mission in mind and good things will happen. In the long run, now you might end up making decisions that are short-term suboptimal, but if you are focused on long-term value creation, then all of that sort of gets washed in the long run and, and, and good things happen. And so, you know, I found that, that the team that I worked with, my partners, uh, people I've been working with for the last 10 years are just incredibly focused on the long run. And, and this is something that, you know, I feel like is less appreciated externally for us, it's a core part of our ethos. Like, by the way, most of our most of our LPs are nonprofits, yeah. um, so they play the long game, right? They've been many of them have been around, you know, decades. Some of them have been around for centuries, and uh, you know, they're not going away anytime soon. It's just a great way to remind us as well that you know, if you if you're thinking about investing in long term enduring businesses, your mindset changes and you you start to make very interesting design choices. And so I found that the I resonated with that culture a lot, this culture of um, innovating for the long run, of trying new things, of not being afraid to fail, um, of investing behind people for the very long run. 
of having a culture that really believes in this idea of 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 compounding um, knowledge you know having 50 years of investing experience uh, in the institution really makes it a lot easier as a young person to come in and learn from the best um that's an, that's been an incredible privilege and you know it's been 10 years i actually just finished 10 years at the firm uh, two weeks ago um yeah, and um, you know i'm excited for the next 10 What what was that kind of first year or two like for you? Like, what, what was there a sense of imposter syndrome when you're around names like Roloff, um, Mike Ritz, like you know 100%. some of the yeah, a hundred percent. Are you kidding me? And by the way, it's not just it's not just the partners that have been around forever. It's also the founders. You know, you yeah. I mean, and and honestly, that's the biggest that's the biggest privilege. Uh, but also the biggest learning is really, you know, in the first couple of years, I would tell my friends, wait, hang on. I get paid to find the smartest people that I can find, and they then tell me everything that they know. What's the catch? <laughs> um, and it turns out there is no catch. Uh, the catch is obviously you need to sort of help them back, and you know, like be partners in the long run. But to me, I found that to be an incredible privilege. And so, any kind of imposter syndrome, which, by the way, that's so common across so many people in the industry, right? Like it's you just you learn to deal with it, and you learn to deal with it in a way that. starts to focus on hey i'm getting so much out of these conversations how can i give back and that's how you bring balance to sort of the giving and receiving of 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 knowledge information impact um and so you know it takes a while to get there but you know people get there mm. and um and the job is incredibly fun mm. what did you find most challenging about the world of venture it's a very very different skill set to founding companies and leading product teams what were the early challenges you know i think the biggest challenge really is is this idea that um feedback loops are really long so it took me a while to figure that out right and you know it's easy to i mean i heard that in the early days saying hey you know what you'll make decisions that you will not know the outcomes for you know months sometimes years but you sort of have to calibrate your own operating rhythm to that reality um and um you know for example i found that you know you could you could go into a, a an investment with a hypothesis but really um the hypothesis evolves the team evolves um and the eventual outcome only gets known many years later and so it requires a certain level of patience it requires this maniacal focus on the very long term again the job forces you to think long term because there is no short term thinking possible you don't know the outcomes of your actions in the short term you only know them in the long run um and so you know as a founder really enjoy the sense of control that they have over their own destiny you know you're running a company you're figuring out every day what to do and you get feedback at the end of the day at the end of the week um our job is incredibly entrepreneurial but the feedback doesn't come at the end of the week it takes a lot longer you are i have about 10 odd boards right now um and um i think what we end up doing is um there's a lot of investments where we end up supporting people i don't okay. know how this attribution came around but i have about 10 odd boards right now yeah And what have been some of the most notable and memorable for you? Uh, like picking kids, I know, but <laughs> I, I was going to say that, and that's the exact analogy. Um, you know, I uh, I'm a part of the the team now at Peak Fifteen in Southeast Asia, and um, you know, our very first investment in Southeast Asia were there were two companies that we did back to back. The first one I've been on the board of for for many years now, and and that company went public a couple of years ago. It's a company called Appier. It's a software company out of Taiwan. I found that to be an incredible journey because you know for the first time seeing a company go very from right from the early days uh, series A all the way to IPO that journey takes a long time uh it's never really a straight line up into the right um and you know I found that being a part of that journey was just uh, uh, just an incredible privilege now 
I do think that for us, you know, the it's the the, the learning for me has always been it takes a while for for companies to find their rhythm and you you kind of have to be patient you have to you have to be the only things that we can control really at the very start are be in the right neighborhood and back the right people and then you sort of have to give give them a little bit of time to figure out exactly what works if you don't back the right people or if you're not in the right neighborhood nothing else really matters um and so to me like i've always sort of taken that to heart saying hey are we in a good neighborhood are we backing the right founders if so let's you know give them everything they need to try to be successful in the long run um yeah and speaking of southeast asia making the jump from west coast of us to southeast asia what was special about the region that you identified or that made you want to take the jump there yeah look i think you know i moved back to asia to say i want to be a part of the asia story um and originally it was india i was in india for 4 years uh with sequoia and then i moved uh to singapore because we were expanding operations in southeast asia I think we are what you will find with us is you know as a as an organization we are very focused on trying new things there is this incredible sense of you know keep trying to break things even if they're working because you don't know if you could do it any better and so for us Southeast Asia much like any other product that we've launched was an experiment and the hypothesis was hey you know there is this incredibly vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem in asia we are covering china we are covering india there's a whole big slew of the world left that we are not covering and singapore felt like the right place to do it and really as peak 15 right now as well you know we are, that's how we are thinking about the world we have a an asia wide franchise you know our india teams covering india which is one of the largest markets in asia and then we're covering the rest of asia out of singapore the idea really is how do we build a a venture firm that can partner with founders at the very early stages regardless of where they're starting up right and now obviously we can't have offices in every city in the world but you know we want to be in the main hubs and for us we felt that singapore was a good hub to be in uh for this part of the world yeah that's um that's fascinating and um we had a southeast asia episode um a couple of weeks back we mentioned this at the start and adam and i have been fascinating uh, learning about the region what have you noticed kind of from the different styles of investing in the west coast compared to india and, and what have you learned particularly about that region yeah look you know there's so much mm-hmm. um but i'd say the you know for us we've sort of come to the conclusion that look the the best founders globally are incredibly ambitious right and they're no longer happy being the largest company in their market the majority of them want to build global businesses regional businesses and um i think southeast asia and you know asia broadly has that i mean australia has that right i mean the best companies all want to be global uh and the same is true for southeast asia as well and so for us the the most interesting thesis that we've been pursuing is really hey how do we build a venture franchise that helps companies expand and fulfill global ambitions and um, there are many ways in which we do that we have programs we have teams we have portfolio specialists but really the idea is nobody wants to start a company to be the largest company in australia or in singapore or in you know any 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 one market um and um i think you know that's 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 inevitable you know like again the the ambitions of founders keeps compounding over time you know you always want to build something better than the last person did and uh i think for us we just want to make sure we are prepared for that future and and building a truly global franchise out of out of asia mm. 
And having done 10 years of investing experience now across different markets like India and Southeast Asia, have you found that the way you've approached investing has changed significantly over time? I know there's very long feedback loops, so it can take a really long time to see whether what you're doing is right or what you're doing is wrong. But from where you started 10 years ago, how has your sort of investing mentality changed? Look, I think what, what hap- what's happened has been, I mean, actually, I'll tell you the biggest, the biggest uh, there's so many things that have changed. The biggest thing that has changed is the sizes of outcomes have just continued to expand. You know, when um, so when we think about businesses and scale, we always think about, hey, how much revenue is a company generating? Right. And and we don't think of valuations because those are just, you know, an external benchmark that doesn't really mean much. We think about revenue and profit. And, you know, when I started at Sequoia 10 years ago, the, the thinking was, hey, how can we back companies that get to a certain scale? And, you know, the the very broad number that we thought about was $100 million of, of net revenue, a gross margin. And that felt like a nice round number to try to sort of uh, do this mental thought exercise, this thought exercise around how big can this business get? That number now is no longer 100, right? It's 250, it's 500. And uh, this is just in a span of 10 years uh, because tech markets have deepened, ambitions of founders have have grown, uh, company sizes have just continued to grow, grow and grow. And so, I've always found that, or we've always found that the tech market is expanding, but a core belief that we have is that the rate of of expansion is also increasing. And, uh, you know, that was in the, uh, you know, Moore's Law was a great example of that. And now it seems to have plateau, may, may, no, may no longer be true, but new things are emerging. You know, 10 years ago, uh, the kinds of things that we would find exciting and, and you know, somewhat unique are much more commonplace these days. And, and the things that we find exciting are, are an order of magnitude larger now. And that's, that's fascinating, you know, and uh, I think that's going to continue in the near term which is sort of what makes venture investing and, and creating companies is always exciting. Yeah. And you're in a market that's big enough to kind of fulfill those ambitions, right? Which is which is quite exciting as well. Um, and, and this is kind of maybe a bit of a selfish question, but what have you learned about kind of training up young venture talent um, from your time leading Sequoia and now uh, P15? Yeah. Look, I think, you know, we have... It's, I always tell young folks who are joining this as a firm, um, you know, we have 11 partners right now as of this moment uh, at the firm. Eight out of the 11 people started their careers here as an analyst or an associate, which means they were typically, you know, early to mid 20s, you know, just out of school or, you know, had a couple of years of work under their belt and they built their career here. And um, so, you know, every time we are interviewing people, I always tell them, don't think of this as your next job. Think of this as your last job. Right. And, and it's very scary when you say that to a 20 something year old, because, you know, they always look at me like I'm just, you know, this old person who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. But the reality is you could choose to do that if you wanted to. Right. And uh, if you look at some of the best investors globally, many of them have been at the same firm for decades. And these are all incredibly smart, ambitious, creative people. What makes them stick at the same platform for so long? I think it's, it's the fact that your impact continues to compound over time and the learning never plateaus. And so what I tell everybody young who's joining us is, hey, think of a very long-term career trajectory here. The firm is really set up to make you successful in the very long run. We're always hiring, even at the youngest levels, we're always hiring future leaders of the firm. We're not hiring people to come and join us for a couple of years and then move on. Um, And then if you take that long-term perspective, then suddenly the kinds of decisions and choices you make change, right? You you give people the 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 
the the ability to make mistakes you you help them learn you give them a lot of chances to grow um and i feel like you know doing that is sort of what really makes helps us hire the the right set of people at our firm is you know giving people a lot of room to grow and learn um and you know we continue to do that even today mm. this might be another selfish question but on the sort of topic of young people but the most accelerated young people at Sequoia and other maybe young investors you see at other firms is there any sort of trends that you notice of what they're doing or ways that they're thinking or how they sort of accelerate themselves yeah yeah and look i think you know we have a, a bunch of them at our firm as well i think they're all you know there is a many of them come with a very strong investors mindset and what that means is um I'm always blown away by you know some of our younger people and the level of clarity that they have in terms of what they want to do. And the number one thing that I found that you know really gets people to stand apart um early in their career is focus. The most common place in which people stumble is sort of the, the converse of that which is you know doing trying to do too many things. And um at least I found that young folks when they come in play to their strengths don't try to do everything. and really become the expert in a particular space that gives them you know it's the same thing we tell our startups you know you start with a wedge you you start with the 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 simple product that that really works very well and then you expand from there i think the best investors do the same thing they become experts at something very specific and they expand their career from there that's the advice that i at least give all our young people just you know start with something small become really really good at it and then expand versus trying to do everything on day one Yeah, that's fascinating advice. And I think we'll go to our quick fire questions in a second, but yeah. I think it'd be good to finish off on what what areas are you currently excited about with Peak 15 and um what's kind of sparking your curiosities at the moment? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think um I was in Australia uh, a month ago and spent a bunch of time talking to a lot of founders and you know, some of the things that I really enjoyed were just um again hearing how the themes that that most people were interested in were really the ones that we are most interested in as well so for us the two biggest sectors are software and fintech um and software is typically global software and um you know i always find it fascinating when there are uh, inflection points that happen in big markets because that's how you know a lot of interesting companies will get created um now i'd say you know by and large software in- investing was uh was still up until a year or so ago relying on the two or three big inflection points of a decade ago right which is mobile and cloud and uh candidly if you look at all the big companies that got created recently uh in software they were all really sort of relying on those trends and potentially ai has an ability to be that big inflection point where a lot of software gets reimagined um it's going to go through its hype cycle we're definitely in the middle of it right now but um as you step back and say hey is there an ability for us to reimagine significant swaths of software globally today using new platforms like you know generative ai or everything else that's emerging around it i think the answer to that is yes you know our our cloud investing thesis a decade ago was articulated by one of my partners as saying there's over a trillion dollars of on-prem software that's going to move to the cloud that's it i thought that was the simplest most convincing articulation of the cloud thesis that i'd heard I think the same thing is true for AI. There's a trillion, multi-trillion dollars of 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 software revenue that can potentially be reimagined. To me, that's fascinating. 
right? And like, you know, maybe not all of it gets reimagined. Maybe only a part of it is. Maybe a lot of it gets captured by um, uh, by the incumbents. Um, you know, one of my partners, um, I was talking to him a couple of months ago, and he mentioned how, you know, the internet um, as a as a platform, the seminal moment for that was really in I think '95 when Netscape went public, right? And that's when people said, "Oh, wow, the internet has arrived." And the iPhone showed up 12 years later in 2007, right? And the internet is still almost 30 years after the Netscape IPO is still the driver of, of a lot of market cap creation. So these things take a long time to play themselves out. Everybody's rushing right now to figure out what the next big AI wave is going to be. But I think this is a trend that has that, that's potentially a, a multi-decade trend. And that to me is super exciting, right? Uh, it's hard not to get excited when you see the world changing in front of you at that pace. Are there any other platform shifts or shift changes that you're seeing happen around the world that are similar to the scale of AI that you're interested in? Similar to the scale? like I Maybe not similar to the scale, but ones that you're fascinated in. Yeah. I think there's a lot of nuances in individual markets that I find fascinating. So for example, fintech is a, is a very big focus area for us across multiple markets. Um, the, the needs of a an Australian business or consumer in financial services are very different from the needs of uh, you know somebody in India, and in many ways, like um, the kinds of products and services available in in Australia are, for example, much more advanced and sophisticated than the ones in India, and in many ways, the ones in India are far more sophisticated and advanced than they are in Australia, and so to me, like I find this disparity of of um, of services and uh, service quality across different markets fascinating because there's no reason for that to be the case. And to me, like, you know, just everybody coming up to parity on on the kinds of services that they have access to is an incredible opportunity in each market. And so that's a market-specific thing where, again, our approach is let's try to learn as much about the market as we can and try to be sophisticated local investors. Uh, and that's something that we've seen in many many of the markets that we've gone into, that there's always white spaces that if you have a global perspective, you're able to identify them very quickly. And that often results in interesting opportunity. Awesome. Should we get into the quick fires? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say, I love the intensity and passion that you have for <laughs> technology shifts and um, industries and things. It's very, very inspiring. So we're onto our quick fire round now where we're going to ask you around six or so questions. We're going to have around 30 seconds each um, and we're going to go back to back. I'm definitely going to mess this up, but let's give it a shot. <laughs> What's one of your favorite books and why? You know, I read this book called um, recently called uh, A Peace to End All Peace. It's a historical book about the consequences of the uh, geopolitics post-World War One and the impact that they've had on the world. And I find history to be fascinating because often history is a fantastic predictor of the future. And uh, the book, the premise of the book is, you know, the fact that all these decisions were made a decade ago have ramifications on everything in the world today and like how small decisions can really compound over time. So I found that to be fascinating. What's one of your favorite podcasts and why? I'm not a big podcast person. <laughs> I, I've, I've really enjoyed Huberman recently. Uh, again, it's very scientific, you know, evidence-based, uh, free-to-use therapies for, for many of sort of... Uh, very relevant things to many, many people. And I find uh, his approach to science uh, very, very refreshing. Huberman's basically a cult-like figure for us and our friends. <laughs> is that <laughs> Everybody right? Everybody that works in tech or is interested in tech basically loves him. 
it's, it's you know it's the it's the best thing to listen to when you're in the gym uh it's it really you know i've i found myself you know listening to him and being like oh shit i need to correct what i'm doing right now cuz clearly mm. the science tells me otherwise <laughs> mm-hmm. if you could have dinner with anyone someone that is dead or alive who would it be uh i'd probably go with i mean you you guys mentioned leonardo da vinci i mean that would be amazing um you know like a true a true polymath somebody who sort of has this incredible way of bringing together many different things into one space i'd love to understand how those brains work Mm-hmm. Right, three more, three more. What's um your favorite breed of cat? Dude, I ha- I have two cats. Uh, <laughs> I love them both, and they're both different breeds, so it's hard for me to pick one. Uh, I I love them both. Um, what's the online community that you spend the most time in? Uh, Reddit. Yeah. Well, what um, kind of subreddit? I'm old school. I'm old school. You know, I always end up having. Uh, I find it like a very good way to pick up on a zeitgeist of like something new that I'm trying to. to learn on so like you know it's it could be something technology related it could be something around science it could be something around um um you know i've recently been fascinated by the engineering of watches and so i really try to understand what it takes to uh, what horology is all about um, you know reddit, reddit's a great place to start I, i'm a nerd i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's cool um this this is kind of a bit a bit of a rogue question but have you seen a movie called zindagi in the milagi dobara I think I've seen maybe parts of it. Yes. Okay, because there's this diving scene and it's this guy that dis- um discovers diving for the first time and it was reminding me of you. I had to I had to pull that up. Um and last question, um if you could send a text message to everyone in the world right now, what would it say? Oh shit. Um get off your phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's I love I love that. It's the first time I've had that answer actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, guys i really enjoyed this chat yeah, uh yeah abhi thanks for coming on i think there were so many learnings there practical and um theoretical ones about the world really fascinating no thank you for having me guys this is this has been a lot of fun and, and i think i think what was great about this yeah i think yeah. what the episode what was great about this episode as well is you're so different to what we thought you'd be like yeah. like you think sequoia partner blah 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 but it was um a great chat <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad it was a positive surprise and <laughs> I think sometimes we get on quite technical venture partners and they can be a little bit like overly analytical. They might not embrace mm. um certain types of thinking and they're not quite as creative, but we definitely didn't find that with you. <laughs>